It's so good to see you here. We especially want to extend a warm welcome to our visitors who have joined us. We hope you'll be blessed by being here today. And there's some information in the bulletin for you who are uh, visiting, and we hope you'll read that. If you please take the friendship pad on your pew and sign it and pass it along for others and um, give those to the ushers at the time of the offering. As you know, I'm not Joseph Curtis. Um, Joseph is ill, and we're sorry about that. Um, he is to go to the doctor again tomorrow morning, but um, we hope that um, his illness will be resolved uh, quickly. I do have a couple of announcements. First, a reminder of this evening's activities with the programs in the Family Life Center for our children and uh, a fundraiser by our youth with the hot dog supper and then the, the trunk or treat uh, about 6.30 in the parking lot. We hope that you'll be participating in as much of that as possible. And there are many other announcements there of importance in the bulletin. I'm not going to mention any others, uh, some interesting things that have been done in, in ministries and mission uh, in our church and through our church as well as announcements about upcoming meetings and other activities. I do want to add this one other announcement. <clears throat> Help is needed in breaking down the handbells immediately after the worship service. Uh, we will appreciate anyone who could assist with that. Let us now prepare to worship.
As an introit, please hear these words from the psalmist. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into God's presence with singing. Know that the Lord who made us is God. We are the Lord's, we are the people of God, the sheep of God's pasture. Enter God's gates with thanksgiving and God's courts with praise. Give thanks and bless God's name, for the Lord is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. God's faithfulness to all generations. The Lord be with you. Let us pray together. Almighty God, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. Grant that we, your people, by your word and sacraments, shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, so that Christ may be known. Amen. Let us now affirm our faith using the historic Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under conscious power, was crucified, dead, and buried.
Please be seated. Let me invite the children to come up now for the children's moments. morning. How are you? All ready for trunk or treat tonight? Good. Um, today we're going to talk for a minute about something that we've been talking about for the last several weeks here in church about um, it's a word called perseverance. Does anybody know what that means? That's a big word. What it means is to um, stick to it, to see a job all the way till the end. Um, and uh, I got to thinking about references in the Bible that had to do with perseverance. And one of my favorite ones is one that comes from 2 Timothy. And this is um, Paul, the Apostle Paul is speaking. And he's talking to his young friend, Timothy. And this is near the end of Paul's life. And um, he kind of compares what he's saying to Timothy to a race. And here's what he says to Timothy. Um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. Now over the last several weeks, I knew that I was going to be doing a children's sermon, so I was trying to think about something that I could talk about. And we have a farm at our house, and certain times of the year I spend my weekends on a tractor either cutting or mowing or plowing or planting. Um, so I'm out there mowing some of the old crops that are up about three or four feet, and they have died, and I'm getting ready to plant new ones. Um, there are lots of critters that live in those high grasses that I'm cutting. And every time I mow, I see mice. Sometimes I see snakes. Um, I'm always seeing rabbits and birds, and every now and then a turtle or two. Um, but every time that I'm out there, um, when the tractor gets close to where rabbits are hiding in that high grass, they shoot out of that hiding place and hop all over trying to find another safe place. Um, and occasionally I'll see a turtle, and that old turtle, he doesn't move too fast, not like that rabbit. He just plods along real close to the ground until he makes it to a safe place. Um, seeing those rabbits scamper around and those turtles plodding also reminded me of a story, uh, which I would like to think that most of you have heard. You heard the story about 
the tortoise and the hare or the turtle and the rabbit? Everybody's heard that. You've had that read to you. Well, I'm going to just tell you the short version of that story. Um, once there was a rabbit, and there were several other animals around, foxes and things like that, but also a, a turtle. And um, he could run faster than anybody else, but he was always kidding the turtle about how fast he could run. Well, one day the turtle said, got tired of listening to him, and he said, just who do you think you are? Uh, nobody, everybody believes that you're fast, um, but I believe you can be beaten. Well, the hare, the rabbit, he just squealed with laughter. Um, and he said to the, tor to the turtle, he said, beaten by who? You don't have a chance in a race against me. I'm so fast. Why don't you just try it? Well, the turtle, um, he was tired of hearing that rabbit brag all the time, so he said, okay, I'll race you. And so they planned out a course, and the very next day at dawn, uh, they stood at the starting line. And the rabbit <clears throat> and the turtle uh, started the race, and the turtle just eased off. Well, when the rabbit saw how slow the turtle was, he said, well, I think I'll just have a quick nap. And he told the turtle, he said, you take your time. I'm going to take 40 winks and have a nap here. So the rabbit had a nap, and the uh, turtle started from the start line. Um, and the turtle only got a short distance away, and the rabbit woke up and saw that he wasn't very far at all. And he said, well, shoot, I've got time for a snack. I'm going to go over in this cabbage field and have me breakfast. So he goes over there and has breakfast. Well, he gets his tummy all full from having breakfast over there. Plus, he's still a little bit sleepy and the sun's beating down. He says, I'm going to take another nap. So he decided to take another nap. Well, he woke up a little bit later and looked, and the tortoise was way down there. But he still wasn't to the finish line. So the rabbit says, um, I can still beat him. So he leaped and bound just as fast as he could. His tongue was hanging out. He was breathing heavy. When, and um, so he thought he was going to beat the turtle of the finish line. But lo and behold, he was too late. The turtle had crossed the finish line and beat the rabbit. Well, the rabbit was embarrassed. And he laid down beside the turtle, and the turtle smiled at him, and the turtle said, slowly does it every time. Now, what does the story of the turtle and the rabbit have to do with our sermon today? Well, it goes back to that big word, perseverance. The rabbit, he was all over the place. He was stopping for naps and snacks, um, thinking all along that he could wait till the very end and cross the finish line in front of the turtle. Uh, but that old turtle, even though he was slow, he just kept moving along with determination that he would make it to the finish line first. Well, as Christians, we want to be like the rabbit. We don't want to be like the rabbit. <clears throat> Flitting around, um, getting distracted, and losing our focus. We want to be like the turtle. Steady, rock solid, and determined to keep our eyes on the finish line. And that means that as youngsters like you and as old folks like me, that Jesus needs to be first in our thoughts and deeds. Remember, it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish it. Now, I'm going to say a short prayer, and then I'm going to give you a chocolate turtle to eat, okay? There are a couple of them in the little package. 
but you have to wait until after the, ser the service is over and hopefully after lunch. But when you chomp down on that chocolate turtle, I want you to remember who won the race, the steady, dependable turtle. Let's pray. Father God, bless these children and their families. They're the future of your church and our nation. May we all be turtles for your kingdom, rock solid, steady, and determined to do your will. Amen. The first scripture lesson is from Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, and it's in two parts. The first part is in chapter one, verses two to four, and it's part of his complaint. He is talking with God and has a complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And the second part is from chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and it's part of the Lord's reply. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it, linger, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. This is the word of God for the people of God.
Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we have come today to worship you. We give thanks for our life together in this local church, this community of faith. Without it, our spirits would become lifeless. Without it, our minds would become gullible. For in this community of faith, our ears can be taught to listen for your word. Your word of both judgment and grace. Here our hearts can be attuned to people who are in need. So we praise you, O God, for the gift of your church and ask you to send your spirit upon it, bless it, and make its walls open to the world. We also think about those who have needs, those who have experienced grief, whatever the cause, and we pray for them. We pray for those who are ill, whether they be at home or in the hospital. For all of these, we pray that the presence and power of your spirit will bring wholeness to their lives. We pray for those who are lost, those who do not know the joy of salvation. Use us as your instruments, as your witnesses, and by what we say and especially by what we do, and by the work of your Spirit, may others be drawn to faith in you. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus, who taught the disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us now worship as we give our tithes and our offerings.
Please be seated. Will Williman, a retired bishop in our denomination, a while back wrote uh, an article for a national magazine about the New Testament church. And I want to acknowledge that uh, some of his thoughts I'm including in the sermon today. For our scripture, I have chosen a passage from Acts. This is in chapter 7 beginning with verse 54. If you want to follow along, it's in the Pew Bible on page 1704. This passage is about the stoning of Stephen, about how Saul, who would have his name changed later to Paul, the great missionary, how Saul was complicit in the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to begin today's sermon with a trivia question. It's one I suspect many of you know the answer to. And the question is, what 1939 film was based on a novel by Margaret Mitchell? And I imagine many of you are right. Uh, the name of that is Gone with the Wind. The movie was a huge hit. Decades later, it was released again, and throngs crowded to the theaters. In 1977, when the film was first shown on television, a reported 100 million Americans viewed it. That was a record at that time. And the movie is still shown, you know, on TV from time to time today. It continues to be one of the most popular movies ever. The story opens in the American South with dashing Rhett Butlers and uh, flirting Scarlett O'Hara's. 
and they're dancing their evenings away in the glittering halls of white column plantation homes that are adorned with moss and magnolias. And all this is going on while simple contented slaves sing at their work in the cotton fields. Then comes war, bringing a tragic end to those pleasant scenes. Everything is reduced to ashes. The once happy slaves are gloomy and proud Scarlet is reduced to living like a peasant. A way of life has gone with the wind. Well, that novel and the movie present a charming picture of the Old South, but it's a picture that is more fantasy than fact. A look at Southern history will show that the pre-Civil War South was anything but a carefree and leisurely society composed of prosperous uh, plantation owners and contented slaves. A small minority of pre-war Southerners did live in the style of Scarlet's Terror. However, the majority of white Southerners never owned slaves, and their existence was poverty-stricken, harsh, rather bleak. The myth that is portrayed in the movie is a good story, but it's not good history. And there's a similar gone-with-the-wind myth concerning the New Testament church. The early church has sometimes been thought of something like this. It was characterized by dedicated believers who spent their days witnessing for Christ, engaging in social action, caring for the poor. It was a church open to all people whose members held no prejudices, made no no distinctions between classes of people, who even shared all they had in common with other believers as any had need. These first Christians were ready to pay for their faith with their lives rather than to submit to the will of Caesar. Now, beside that ideal of the New Testament church that I've just stated is the picture of the church as it's sometimes uh, portrayed today. We hear in today's church that members aren't too comfortable about talking with other people about Christ, that church members don't want to be tied down, don't want to make a commitment. It's a church where members hesitate to get involved in social concerns because those issues are controversial and divisive. It's seen as a church where prejudices persist. It says that church members are narrow-minded. We're told that you sometimes can't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian during your week. Well, it's discomforting to us, I know, to 
hear that kind of description, the way some people talk about the church, and compare it to the first church, the New Testament church, it's disheartening to think that we may have strayed so far from our glorious heritage. But the truth of the matter is this. The charming picture of the early church that I described moments ago is also more fantasy than fact. A quick glance at church history or a reading of the biblical books like the Acts of the Apostles or if you read through some of Paul's letters, especially the letters to the Corinthians, it reveals a New Testament church that was anything but unified, anything but totally dedicated, anything but a solid, courageous gathering of the followers of Christ. The humorist Will Rogers was a good observer of human nature And Rogers once said, in uh, referring to public education, quote, the schools of the day ain't what they used to be and never was. His point was that we tend to idealize the past. And sometimes we've done that in regard to the early church. We thought that it's more ideal than it actually was. It continues to amaze me how the authors of the books that make up the Bible seem to go out of their way to show the biblical characters as they were, ordinary sinners. The writers seldom try to cover up the faults of the people that we read about in the Bible. Look at the Old Testament. Take Jacob. He was a liar, he was a thief, he lied to his father Isaac in order to gain the blessing that was rightfully his older brother's Esau. Take David, an excellent king, the greatest king in Israel's history. Yet on one occasion he was so attracted to a woman who was not his wife that he committed adultery and then saw to it that her husband was killed in battle. And Moses, the great lawgiver who passed down the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. In his young adulthood, he was a hothead, ended up killing an uh, Egyptian soldier. These people aren't idealized in the scripture. They were shown as people with human weaknesses, with sins, who nevertheless struggled, tried to be faithful, tried to be obedient to God. But neither their weaknesses nor their strengths are the most important thing. They were people whom God called for a mission called to do God's work. Those persons I just named are in the Old Testament. The New Testament period was no golden age either. 
Jesus' disciples were forever misunderstanding what he was trying to say. They, on occasions, were trying to seek advantage for themselves. Judas, we know, betrayed Christ, enabling the officials to locate Jesus and to capture him. And when Jesus was arrested, what did the rest of the disciples do? They ran away. They fled. Peter did follow the arrested Jesus, but when some of the people saw him, they accused him of being one of the disciples, and he lied and said, I've never known him. After learning in Sunday school about how the disciples failed Jesus, a young student said, and I quote, seems like Jesus wasn't a very good judge of character to choose men like them for disciples. Well, we can understand that thought as well. But Jesus had no illusions about the saintliness of the disciples. What he knew was that even people like them could be used to do his work and to spread his message. So the writings of the Old Testament, the New Testament, they don't make out the characters to be better than they were. We read a combination of their sinfulness and their faithfulness. But what about the early church is there that we sometimes idealize? Well, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul, the first great missionary of the church, whose writings make up a big portion of the New Testament, was, as I read in the scripture lesson moments ago, a persecutor of Christians, an accomplice to the murder of Stephen. But later, after his conversion, Paul traveled extensively as a missionary, organized churches. He wrote letters back to churches that he had started, addressing problems they had, um, that had developed in those churches. And in those churches, as I said earlier, if you read Corinthians, you'll read about divisions and doubts, and disputes about doctrine, all kinds of troubles. They were churches where heretics prayed alongside martyrs, where backsliders and lukewarmers were there along with the faithful. We still have some characteristics of that today, do we not? And we can change that earlier quote from Real Ro Will Rogers and say, the church today ain't what it used to be and never was. You may conclude from what I've said that we should not be overly concerned about how unfaithful Christians may be today since others before us have been the same way. Well, that's not what I would want to leave with you. God does not excuse, God does not condone a lack of commitment on the part of those who follow Christ. God expects us to be more than we are now. 
what my intention is this morning is actually to foster in us hope. Hope. Hope to counter the despair or the thought that God cannot use us. We, the church, have both conflicts and opportunities, just as the early church did. But the important thing is not who we are, nor what we have done. What's important is who God is and what God has done. We may be disturbed that we are not who God has empowered us to be. Nevertheless, we can have hope. Hope based on the conviction that God is as active in the world today as God was 2,000 years ago. God's Spirit is still moving, still moving in the lives of ordinary people, in ordinary places, in ordinary situations, moving, leading us, calling us to be more than we are indeed to become the people God intends for us to become. In short, God's Spirit was at work in that imperfect church years ago. And the good news of the gospel that I would share with you today is that God is also at work in the church today and wants to be at work in your life and mine. Let us pray. O Spirit of God, we affirm that you are alive and that you are seeking to use us and to lead us if we will only listen and follow. Help us to do just that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.